Well, if you would, would you please grab a Bible and open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We are at the end of the chapter today. It seems like quite a long chapter. And at the end of this chapter, as Linda mentioned, there's a fork in the road. The chips are down for the followers of Jesus. They have now heard what he is about. And the question is, will they stay with him? Will they keep following? Have you wondered about what makes a disciple a disciple? We use that term a lot, we, and we, we throw it around in churches. But I think a lot of us may not know or think too deeply about what this means. I mean, the implications of being a disciple are huge, and we could spend a long time working to fully define that and flesh that out, but at a very basic definition, a disciple is someone who follows someone or something with the intent to become like the one they're following. Let me repeat that again. A disciple is someone who follows someone or something with the intent of becoming like the one they're following. So think about that for a second. Whether you realize it or not, that makes us all disciples. We are all following someone or something, intending to become more like someone or something. And some of you were around back in, I think it was the 90s, for the Gatorade commercial uh, with the jingle, Be Like Mike, where people who really wanted to be like the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, well, according to marketers, they should drink Gatorade. Most of us don't even remember that the commercial was about Gatorade. I had to look that up. Being a disciple of someone is, or something is everywhere. We were actually designed for it. But that's the question. Well, okay, of all the myriad of options out there, who should we really follow? Who can we follow? Who do we really want to be like? In our world today, there are voices everywhere saying, this person or that person, this thing or that thing. And in the church, who are we saying to follow? Who are we saying to be like? Jesus? We've got to be careful here. We've got to be careful here. The Sunday school answer is the right one. But I was asked in one of my interviews with the elder board, before coming to be your pastor, the question was pitched to me, and I don't remember it totally verbatim, but it basically was the effect of, what would you say to someone who came up to you and said in response to doctrine or studying the Bible, said, we just need to follow Jesus and love each other. And my thought was, well, I, I agree with that statement, but what's the question that must be asked under that statement? to help us understand that sentiment. And the answer I responded was, which Jesus are we talking about? Is it the self-help kumbaya Jesus who just wants you to have more money? Is it the Jesus of liberation theology where the goal of the people, of the goal of the people of God is simply to achieve social, economic, and political justice through political means? And crush, and crush whichever oppressor you perceive is oppressing you? 
Is it the Jesus who makes you into a God where your words bring about power? Where you are the master of your own fate? Or is it the real Jesus? The one the Bible reveals? Who is God in the flesh? Who really died on the cross for real sins? Who really rose from the dead? who really has ascended and is at the Father's side, and who is interceding for his people, who is full of grace and truth, who does seek justice and holiness, but who also does not show any favoritism, and who calls us not to work, but to trust him. Even, and calls us to trust him, even when he says we must deny ourselves and take up our cross instead of a crown. the Jesus who's not ultimately after our full potential and worldly success, but who's after our salvation, our sanctification, and our glorification that we would glorify him and not look anywhere else to be fully satisfied. And when we hear of who Jesus really is, the question is pitched to you, will you still follow him? When he doesn't meet your expectations, which will happen, he will exceed them, and sometimes, and that makes us uncomfortable. Will you still follow him, or will you go somewhere else? That's where we're at today in the Gospel of John. So, if you've gotten there to chapter 6, verse 60, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? John chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 60, all the way through the end of the chapter. When many of his disciples heard it, that is, this, this whole sermon that we've been listening to in the previous verses, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You can have a seat. This is one of the saddest points in Jesus' ministry, but also one of the most hopeful. 
As I've mentioned before, this is a watershed moment. This is the fork in the road for Jesus' disciples. And we're going to be looking today at true disciples and false disciples. And for those who would be true disciples, which is the right way to go, let's, just, let's clear the air with that, it's the right way to go. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. It's about mouthful. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. Let's dive into this. Number one, false disciples disbelieve Jesus' words. True disciples are rescued by Jesus' words. Verse 60, when many of his disciples, you notice it's, it's a, he still says disciples there, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? They say, this is a hard saying. They're not stumbling over the part they don't get. They stumble over the part they do. The part they do is that they can't bring about their own salvation. That it's not about free food for life. The feeding of the 5,000, that is a sign to point to Jesus, not to more free food. It's not about political revolution. Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome, at least in the sense that they were thinking. He came about to bring his kingdom. And it's not even, their following Jesus is not ultimately about them. It's about Jesus. And it's God who brings about salvation. We're the ones brought to life. We're the ones given a gift. We didn't bring ourselves and they didn't bring, their, bring themselves even one one hundredth of the way to God. There is no, well, if you meet God 50%, he'll meet the other 50 and meet you halfway. No, it's 100% God all the way. This is a hard saying, and it's also about a crucified Savior, not one that's triumphant in military victory, leading the march. No, for anyone... The death of the leader usually is the end of things, not the climax of things. That's why he says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You see, the way back to heaven for Jesus is through the cross. And that's true for everyone who believes in him. But these disciples disbelieve him. <laughs> In some ways, this isn't surprising. This is a hard message. Do you know what Scripture calls the message of the cross, of God's salvation? God, through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, calls the message of the cross. He says this, For the word of the cross is what? Folly to, for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those who are, do not believe, this is hard because it seems like absolute foolishness. This seems like scandal. And if it were not real, it would be foolish. And on strictly human terms, it is foolish. Now, I've said and spoken a couple times since I've been here about evangelism, of sharing and proclaiming 
the good news, encouraging you to go and make disciples. Encouraging and exhorting us to do it. Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family need above all things to hear this message. (laughs) And maybe I've misread your faces when I've said this, but I've detected either not being taken too seriously about when God says this, that we should be doing this, or that what I've called us to do, we know it's right, but it's a hard saying. We, and I include myself with you, we want to speak the good news of Jesus. We know it's good news. We've been transformed by the good news. We want them to know it. But we may be well be worried of doing it because of, and these are just a few things, we may assume that they've already heard it. Or we don't believe they'll listen. Or we believe that we'll make an enemy rather than a beloved brother or sister in Christ. Or we think that we just don't have the right words to say. Or we're just not bold enough. <laughs> I'm there. Do you know what all those reasons have in common? They rely on our power, not on God's. Jesus says in this passage, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then down in verse 65, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Salvation operates on God's power, on God's word. On our own, we will not have the right words. We will totally operate in fear. What do we do then? We have a command. What do we do? False disciples disbelieve Jesus' words, but we who believe them, we should rephrase this for true disciples at the beginning and say, this is a hard saying. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. As the Father cried for his Son and for his own belief in the Gospels. What should we do? We should start with prayer. Everything we undertake should be begun, continued, and ended with prayer. The same is true for evangelism. When I was given a tool, very helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you, for doing some of the groundwork of evangelism, to to acknowledge and submit that it is on God's power, that them receiving the message is not up to me. That's not on my record if they reject it. Now, there's nothing magical about these words, but it, it's, it's called a five-second prayer. And, and in all the words are right out of Scripture, and it reflects the truth that Jesus teaches in this passage in John. So it, if you want to bring that up on the screen, this is, this is what it is. Father, please draw... You fill in the blank with your family member's name, your neighbor's name, your coworker's name. 
by, please draw so-and-so by your Holy Spirit to Jesus and make him a harvest worker. Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord that he would send out more laborers into his harvest. Go ahead, write this down. Please, write this down. Use it. Memorize it. I want you to pray something like this when you're mowing your lawn and you see your neighbor's house. I want you to do this when you're at the gas station and you see someone else on the other side of the pump. I want you to do this when you look across the office and see your coworker. I want you to do this when you're at a birthday party with a family member who doesn't believe. I want you to do this for the person who cuts you off on I-80. That's way better than giving them the finger. I'm not saying you guys do that, but... For the person, I want you to pray this for the person in the vehicle and the police officer who are pulled over on the side of the road. For the person six feet ahead of you in the grocery line. Do you want God to bring many more sons and daughters to glory? Start with prayer. Trust what he says here. It is the spirit that gives life. False disciples disbelieve Jesus' words, but true disciples are rescued by them. Number two, false disciples walk away from Jesus. True disciples can't go anywhere else. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This This is very sad. sad is it that people brought within sneezing distance of Jesus within the brought within face to face interaction with the light of the world, the bread of life, God in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy One of God whom their people have waited thousands of years to receive and they bail they are the closest they've ever seen, they've ever been to being actually alive, being guaranteed an eternally satisfying source of life. They leave. They leave. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The going got tough, and they walked away. Why? They're false disciples. And I don't want to, that's what this indicates. There are some of you who do not believe. They came with wanting the Jesus they expected instead of Jesus as he would, as he was. And they would not commit to him. And the situation in, some way, in many ways has not changed. People want today want Jesus that want the Jesus they expect instead of committing to him as he is. And believing is a commitment, isn't it? I mean, there's a fork in the road. You go one way, you don't get to go the other way. (laughs) 
It's a commitment. And God doesn't come down to earth to say everything is peachy with us and lightheartedly laughs off why he needed to come at all. No, he says, you're dead in your sins and you need me for life. The world is broken. I have come to make all things new. Come to me. And for the spiritually dead person who believes that they're alive and that they can make the world a better place on their own or by the vehicle of human progress, Jesus coming and saying that is the most offensive thing possible. And they walk away. Well, what about the true disciples? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. True disciples don't walk away from the truth. They can't go anywhere else. They've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I was having a conversation with someone in our congregation the other week, and they said it like this. You just know You can't unknow this Jesus. True disciples believe and come to know. <laughs> Good news for us. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to come to Jesus. You don't have to be a lot of things. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. And when you believe, then you'll start to know. You'll start to know him. This is not just an intellectual exercise. This is a whole total, you get to know the person, God in the flesh. You see, for the true disciple, the greatest pursuit, the greatest adventure, the greatest joy is what Paul said, is knowing Christ and growing in knowing him as he is and letting all the various glasses and lenses that we might look through him be taken away, that we would see him clearly as he is. There is nothing that comes close, to, nothing that comes close to knowing Christ. Nothing. Some of you need to be reminded of this today, to, be, to remember the one for whom you were made. Some of you need to be taught today that this Jesus is the one you were made for. Stay with him who has the eternal life, who has the words of eternal life, and who graciously and lovingly gives us his voice in this book, who makes himself known so that he can be believed and known. He wants you to know him. But remember, he is the Holy One of God. Peter confessed rightly, you are the Holy One of God. And it's good news. might be a little difficult, but you will not stay close to holiness and remain unchanged. To stay with Jesus, to go nowhere else, means that Jesus is going to turn on every light in every room of your life. 
and he's going to open up every drawer, and he's going to open up every box and every locked filing cabinet. And he's going to say, you're mine, and I am yours. That's what holiness does. It's raw purity, glory, totally other than the fallen nature we're used to living in. So yes, he turns on all the lights. But it also means that whoever remains with the Holy One of God is made holy. That's good news. We're designed to be holy. We were made to be holy, but because of sin, we could never be holy unless God acted, taking our unholiness upon himself at the cross placing upon us his holiness and making us holy all the way in through eternity. And it is ours for the true disciples who can't and don't go anywhere else. We get the privilege to be made who we were made to be, to be with the God who we were made to be with. False disciples disbelieve Jesus' words, and they also eventually walk away from Jesus. But followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. True disciples are rescued by his words, and they stay with Jesus. And there is one more contrast we must see in this passage today. Number three, false disciples betray Jesus. True disciples are tested true by Jesus. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus said. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. (laughs) I can't think of a single thing that would make ministry more difficult for Jesus than knowing from the beginning that one of his closest disciples did not believe and was, was on a trajectory to selling him out to the Jewish authorities who denied their Messiah and the Romans who played a part in his execution. That is like the biggest bee in your bonnet. But yet here it is. He already knows. He already knows those who do not believe. He knows who is going to betray him. What does he do? He loves anyway. He proclaims anyway. His love for his church those who do believe, and his love for his Father is greater, absolutely greater than the, than the hatred of the thought of betrayal. This should stun us. Because apart from him, we are capable of this. The song goes, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We should give thanks that Jesus persisted in ministry though he knew what would come. We should give thanks because he persists, he intercedes with us who do believe though we stumble in many ways like James says. There are only two disciples mentioned in this passage by name. 
Judas, the betrayer, and Simon Peter. Do you recall Simon Peter's track record up to the crucifixion? He's got some stellar moments given to him by God, right? Like here. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have, be- we have, be- have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. And he also displays his own fallenness when he betrays Christ. Three times. Surely you've got to be one of his disciples. No, I do not know him. I've never heard of him. Three times. And Jesus looks over at him, knowing from the beginning that he was going to do that. So here's a question. Why is Peter listed as the betrayer here, alongside Judas? Again, false disciples betray Jesus. Remember what Jesus prayed for Peter? Peter, you have failed. After you have failed. I have prayed that, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. Basically, after you've failed, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. False disciples who betray Jesus. This is an issue of identity. It's not about what we do. The Lord knows those who are his. Second Timothy 2 verse 19 says, What's the difference? What's the difference in identity? What does Jesus say about Judas at the end of the passage here in verse 70? Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Peter sinned against Jesus. But he was restored. Why? Because he was Jesus's. He was given a new identity in Jesus. He believed Jesus. That's why it's, it's just one thing. This is the work of God, that you believe. Judas sinned against Jesus as well. He gave, he gave up the Messiah to destroy the plan of salvation, and he perished. Why? Because his identity was the same as that of the one who has tried to thwart the plan of God from the beginning, the devil. And in that identity, he betrayed Jesus. False disciples betray Jesus. But true disciples are tested true by Jesus. He knows who will not believe, and he sees a lot of people walking away. And his close disciples see that too. Can you imagine this scene? Enter into this scene. Jesus draws a major line in the sand and says, Believe me and eat of my flesh. And if you're one of the close disciples, the friends that you thought were friends your brothers and sisters in part of a world-shaking movement of the arrival of the Messiah. 
they don't cross the line. They look at it and grumble and walk away. And it's almost as if Jesus is alone right at that moment. The crowd is leaving, and I imagine his disciples off in a corner of the synagogue looking at each other like, what do we say? Do we leave? We can't leave. Well, what do we do? And then Jesus drops the question in their lap in verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? This is a test. And we have to understand that if Jesus knows who will not believe, surely he knows who does. And because he knows who does, he asks this question not because he feels alone. He asks this question for them to put their faith on the line. Right then, the Jewish culture was walking away because they were ashamed of Jesus and were, by leaving him, shaming him. Anyone who stayed with him would be shamed as well. We call that canceled in our day. Have you ever felt peer pressure? Have you ever felt the pressure in our day to go along with the godless crowd wherever they might fall along the political spectrum away from Jesus? When he draws a line in the sand, what would you say? What would you do? Simon Peter, the shoot first, ask questions later guy, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. Peter, tradition has it, was rejected by his people and eventually crucified upside down. How could somebody go that route? It's if this kind of person shows up the Holy One of God. How could we view anything or anyone as more, more satisfying or more sufficient than Jesus? John Piper, a writer and speaker and a former pastor, asks a really good question, one that I put to you today that I have had to ask. The critical question, he says, for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ was not there? Followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. 
and we will be tested true by Jesus. Whether that's the pressure of the crowd, the normal demands of life, of sickness, when our friends depart, desert and betray us, when those we love die, when the persecution hunts for us because we believed God had shown up and is worth following unto death, we will be tested. And that's good news because in those moments, the same Peter who confessed here wrote in his first epistle, he says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. False disciples betray Jesus, but true disciples are tested true by Jesus. Followers of Jesus, they follow Jesus for Jesus. And there's something that we should not miss from this text, however. We will all probably have what I call a Peter moment in our lives. Maybe more than one. And I've shared this with many of you. Maybe you remember. I was at the end of college, working my butt off to get my degree done. The trouble was is that the harder I worked, the worse I got. And the bricks kept piling into my bag, as a good friend told me this week. I walked back to my apartment one day. I was just darkest, darkest clouds around me, feeling sorry for me. And as I walked back, you know what I thought? I thought, you know what the real problem is here? It must be God. If my life is this crummy and I am working so hard to make it work, it's not. It it's not me. It must be God. So I decided that I was going to break up with God. And I told him, I don't want anything more to do with you. I'm done with this Christian thing. And I finished the walk back, somewhat smug but still angry. And when I got there, I opened the door. And it's that psychological thing. You open a door and some clicks, but no, it was, it was the hand of God. I remembered that I was supposed to be at that moment at a big special event for a dear friend of mine. And because I had stormed home in a huff in my own pity party, trying to disown God, I had missed most of it and couldn't make it in time for even a fashionably late appearance. I had made a fool of myself. I couldn't run my life, even something simple as that, attending something fun. I stormed into my bedroom and slammed my door and sagged next to the bed. And I don't believe that it's normative that God speaks audibly to people in some voice out of the sky. I mean, he can if he wants to. But that day, I heard the closest thing the audible voice of God. And it was almost exactly like this scripture here, and that's how I knew it was him. He asked, what are you going to do now? Who are you going to go to? Do you want to go away as well? 
And I started, my mind started turning. I started going through everything I could think of. Money, sex, Buddhism, Hinduism, secularism, on and on and on. Career, all this stuff. And every single one that I thought of, every single one, the answer was the same. No, it's not enough. No, that can't satisfy. The list could have been a thousand times longer and it would not have mattered. There would not have been enough. None of them would have satisfied. And that's right where God wanted me to be. Because when I came to the end of the list, I had my Peter moment. Whom, to whom, God, shall I go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And I have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is what we can't miss from this text. Is that Jesus didn't go anywhere. The crowd may have left, but Jesus didn't. Even when the betrayer was hiding in his midst, he stayed to help the disciples in their belief. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus for Jesus. And he waits for you. He waits for me. Let's pray. Thank you for waiting, Lord Jesus. Thank you for persisting with us. Thank you that you have made it so that nothing else, as pleasurable or enjoyable as it might be, nothing else can satisfy as you can. We were not made for anyone else but you. So Lord, I pray, remind us today. This is a hard saying, but we believe, help us in our unbelief. Oh, Lord, we pray. Please remind us of this in this tough season. Remind us in the seasons that are tougher. And remind us in the seasons that are easier. We pray, Lord, as we go to celebrate communion today, eat at your table after a long time. We pray that we would remember your body broken and your blood shed so that you would bring us to yourself, that we would be with you forever. The answer to that question is all those things are great, but we ha- if we have not Jesus, we have nothing, and all those things are as nothing. Help us when we fail, Lord.
Help us to remember who you really are. We pray, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.